brought my Bible with me today. I don't always come up with my Bible, you know, nowadays you, thank you, yes, nowadays you write notes, you know, and you have your phone, and I've, I've gotten used to, you know, my phone to read my Bible and stuff, but I still miss just the Bible, right, the, just the, the book, so I brought my big one today, and uh, this was given to me by a friend when we moved to China three and a half years ago, and I just pulled it out of my drawer, I haven't looked at it in a while, I have a couple that I work with, and... Um, so this friend gave it to him, and he wrote a verse in the front, and I even forgot about it, and I looked at it this morning, and uh, he was encouraging me because he knew I was a little nervous about moving to China and all that, and uh, so anyway, he gave me Job uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 9, and it says this, you know, talking about God, he does great things too marvelous to understand, he performs countless miracles, he gives rain for the earth and water for the fields, he gives prosperity to the poor and protects those who suffer. I just remembered my friend gave that to me, so got my Bible. I might use it later. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Ralph Howe, one of the pastors here, so very glad you're here uh, this morning, and uh, we're going to be taking communion toward the end of the service, and uh, we're just going to share some things out of Scripture to prepare our hearts and our minds to, to do that. Um, have you ever been intimidated uh, by a person in your life before? Maybe, maybe a neighbor, maybe a, a boss, or somebody in, an opo- in another, you know, maybe a competitor's business. But uh, probably we've all felt intimidated by someone we didn't really know uh, too well. Um, it's happened to me, uh, you know, quite a few times. Um, and so in 2004, uh, I was working at a job, and I came on staff at a church in Orlando, Florida, to plant a video venue church. And at the time, I was part of this church, and this church was a growing, dynamic church of about 2,500 people, was outgrowing the space, and for years, there were, there were the elders, and there were some really strong business leaders that were elders of the church, and uh, the guy that kind of was leading the charge for this video venue that I got hired to be the pastor for uh, was a guy named Brad, and Brad was one of these dynamic business leaders. At that time, he was the president of Epcot uh, at Disney, right? Pretty good job. Um, you know, this guy has got a resume that's, you know, that long, you know, and I'm not kidding. When small print, it's that long, right? Um, this guy graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy, which if you know anything, that's an amazing accomplishment, right? He went from there to Harvard Business School and graduated with his, you know, business degree from Harvard Business School. He then became an officer on a Navy submarine, uh, a, 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 a nuclear submarine, which again, if you really understand what that means, this guy is really sharp. He was actually on the finance team for Disney, and he was the primary uh, leader who uh, brokered the deal for Disney in Hong Kong. Uh, so uh, he's got some connections here to this part of the world as well. And so um, he's got a beautiful family. You know, back in 2004, three beautiful teenage kids, wife, drives a really cool car, you know, great shape, you know, just one of those guys that's really annoying, honestly. I mean, you know, to, to, to tell you the truth, I mean, the guy really just bugged me, right? But, but what, what I knew was this guy was passionate about this campus that I was hired to be in charge of, and I was intimidated by Brad. I mean, I, I knew that once he got close to me and saw me, he would know I was the wrong guy for the job, Right? And so I was afraid, and I was scared. And we're going to look at somebody in Scripture in a minute who was afraid of somebody that he didn't know. And, of course, we'll make application later. But let me tell you about Brad a little bit more, and then we'll get into Scripture. So 
I started asking around about Brad. Hey, who, you know, who is this guy? What's he like? So he's running Epcot. You know, if, if you understand, he's running a major park in Disney. And he's on a career path to run all the parks around the world for Disney. That's like this guy's just going this way, right? And I'm just intimidated the whole bit. And so I asked some of the people that work for him at Disney, what, what's Brad like? You know, because I'm going to start being in meetings with him all the time. And uh, they said, let, let me tell you what Brad's like. They said, Brad regularly puts on uh, the custodial um, uniform. And he takes a broom and he takes a, a garbage can and he wheels it around the park and he cleans the park regularly. And they told me about a time that Brad had a meeting with the custodial staff. And by the way, the custodial staff are on a first name basis with him. He's the president of Epcot, right? He has an open door. They can come in any time. And he gave a talk that I was told the custodial staff will never forget because he said, guys, none of these guests will come into my office. A very small percentage will ever see the work that I do. But all of the millions of guests that come to our park will see your work. That makes you the most important people in this park. It's neat leadership. Brad would regularly be out in the park, and he would catch, he was famous for catching employees doing something right. And then he would write them a note and send them a gift card. You know, hey, dinner's on me for you and your family. I noticed you were dealing with that difficult guest situation last Tuesday. I just wanted you to know I was aware of it. Thanks for the way you honored our company. You know, it's the kind of leader Brad was. I started getting excited when I heard that. By the way, we need more leaders like that, don't we? We need leaders like that. Man, we all lead in some way. Lead, be a godly leader wherever you are, whatever you do. We need those kind of leaders. But then the clincher for me, that, that when I really dropped my guard was when I heard that, I mean, you know, Brad's got a, uh, the family of the teenagers at the time, and the employees told me, one particular employee told me that when she, her heart was won over, not just to Brad, but to Disney, uh, as an employee was uh, every Christmas Eve. You know, when you're an employee and you work at Disney, you have to work on the holidays. And nobody wants to work on Christmas Eve in America. So if you get the short straw, you kind of have to do, you know, you, you work till one in the morning, right? Christmas Eve, nobody wants that. And so this employee drew the straw, short straw. She went to work. She was a little bummed out. She did the whole thing. And she was leaving at 1 a.m., walking through the employee parking lot. And Brad was out there with a Christmas hat on. And he had fresh-baked cookies and hot chocolate that he was giving to all the staff that were leaving. And every Christmas Eve, Brad's family was at home, and he was there with his employees. And he said, I'm never going to not be here Christmas Eve if I ask my employees to be here. So I probably told you too much about Brad, but, but I dropped my defenses once I got to know him, right? Um, so there's a guy in Scripture who was afraid of somebody he didn't know. And we're going to look at that story as a way to prepare ourselves uh, for communion. Um, and it's all about grace. And so I'll just set up the story here. Um, some of you will know it. Uh, the first king in Israel uh, was a man named Saul. And Saul was a giant of a man. He was a handsome and strong, capable man. And he became the first leader at, of Israel at a very difficult time. It was a time where enemies all around Israel were seeking to destroy them. So Saul was very much a military general and leader, and he was constantly out to battle, fighting and defending the nation of Israel. And early on in his kingship, he dishonored God. See, God told Saul, you're going to be king. You're anointed by me, and you're going to do things my way, because my way is different than the world's ways. Well, Saul didn't do that, and God removed his anointing from Saul early on in his kingship. And God not only removed it, but he put it on someone else. He put it on a young man, probably a teenager named David. And the, the, the prophet of Israel, Samuel, even came to David and anointed him as the next king. And so here's Saul 
and the Spirit of God has been removed from him, but he remained king for many, 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 many years. And if you ask King David what those years were like, he would say they were miserable because you know what Saul did? This military, you know, very adept general did. He sent his army out after David to kill him because that's how you do it in these cultures. You wipe out any opposition. You wipe out their family. You get rid of them so that they're not a threat to your leadership and your power. And so for year after year after year, Saul sought to kill David. And David hid in the fields and he hid in the woods and he went to other countries and he hid in caves. And he lived a miserable existence even though he'd been anointed king. Now, if I was David, I would have had plenty of time to build up resentment and anger towards Saul and his leaders and his family who were ruining my life if I'm King David, right? And so many, many years go by that way. And ultimately, in one of the battles that Saul goes out to fight on behalf of Israel, he and his son Jonathan, who would have been the next king if it had stayed in the family line, were both killed in battle. David never laid a hand on them. He always sought reconciliation with the family. But they were killed in battle. And so now David is going to become king. See, all of Israel knew David was destined to be the next king. So... They're killed in battle, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 31. And then we come to uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. David's now going to become king, and here's, here's what it says. Then the men of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel, came to David and anointed him king over the people of Judah. And then you skip down a bit. And David speaks then to the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, uh, now that Saul is dead, I ask you to be my strong and loyal subjects like the people of Judah who have anointed me as their new king. So finally, there's going to be a united, David's going to be the leader. And then you kind of hear the, I kind of hear drum roll. I kind of hear, hear dark clouds kind of roll in. I see thunder and lightning. And here's the verse, uh, 2 Samuel 2, verse 8. It says, but... But Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had already gone to Mahanaim with Saul's son, Ishbosheth. It was his grandson, it was his, yeah, his other son. There he proclaimed Ishbosheth king over Gilead, Jezreel, Ephraim, and Benjamin, the land of Asherites, and all the rest of Israel. So, really, if you get into this, this is a story of kingship, it's a story of war, it's a story of power. And David has rightfully come to the throne. After all these years of misery because of the house of Saul. And now there's going to be civil war. And the next part of the story is all about civil war. Because now David has to fight against Saul's family. Ishbosheth, his son. In order to rightfully have the throne of all of Israel. And so they want to work out a deal. And so um, 2 Samuel chapter 2 further on. David's commander and the army go out and they meet Ishbosheth's. I love trying to say this. Ishbosheth's. It's harder than Chinese. <laughs> um, Ishbosheth's army leader and, and army come out and they meet in a plane and they come together and they talk and they bring a handful of soldiers each. And perhaps they were trying to work things out, but what ended up happening was each man grabbed the other man, took their sword, and everybody died. They all thrust the sword into him. It's ugly stuff, it's war. This is the animosity that's happening between David's family and Saul's family. And so the verse says, So there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. 
And that beginning brutal battle was the beginning of a civil war in Israel. And for the next seven and a half years, David had to fight against the house of Saul. 2 Samuel 3.1 says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So think about David. Over 10 years, 11, 12, 14 years of hardship because of the house of Saul. And now here's the... None of this is even what we're talking about yet. So if I've lost you, come back, because none of this is what we're talking about, right? As God does so often, you've got a big story going on. And then God just slips this little thing in, and you just go... Well, that's not even, what's that all about? You know, that's not even part of the story. Well, here's what's happening. In the midst of this big drama, there's a subplot. And the subplot is introduced to us in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And it says this, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. The son was five years old when he heard the news about Saul and Jonathan, that they had been killed in a battle. And at the, at the hearing of that news, his nurse took him and they fled. Why did they flee? Why did the nurse take the grandson of Saul? Because someone's going to come kill him. Because he's part of the royal family. He's the next in line to be king. They know what's going on, so they're going to they're wipe him out. So the nurse is scared. She picks him up and she runs for their life to go hide. While she's running, she drops him. And he suffers such an injury that he becomes lame in his both feet. And for the rest of his life, he's lame in his feet. And he can't walk. He's injured in the midst of a fall. Then we don't hear anything about him. Then it just goes back to the warfare with David and, and all this stuff. Ultimately, Ishbosheth, the king of the north, is killed. And the kingdom is united under David. 2 Samuel 9.1. Uh, 2 Samuel 8.15. So David reigned over all of Israel. So probably 14 years of misery under this house of Saul, and now David has got all the power. He's the leader. He's got all the power. And what happens? You immediately go out and you kill the family. That's what you do. That's what you did in those cultures, right? Still happens today probably in places. So what does David do in 2 Samuel 9-1? David asks a question. He says, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul? that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake. Right? I know some of you know this amazing story. And that's why I brought my Bible. I'm going to read it out of the Bible instead of my little white notes. This thing's heavy. So David says, is there anybody left in Saul's house that I can show kindness to? Someone says, yes, there is. The king then asks, so yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. David asked, where is he? They said, he's in Lodabar at the home of Macher, son of Amiel. So David sent for him. Royal entourage goes out to Lodabar, gets him, and brings him to the palace of the king. How do you think Mephibosheth was feeling? Think he was excited or you think he was nervous? He's probably nervous, right? How are they going to kill me? Fast, slow, what's going to happen, right? Because he'd been hiding all these years in Lodabar. But it turns out David had a whole different plan. David said, because of your relationship with Jonathan, Saul's son, um, I'm going to restore everything that you've lost. Everything that you've lost through the tragedy of your life, I'm restoring it all to you. And not only that, but you won't live here as one of my servants, but you'll live here as one of my sons. 
and you will continually and forever eat at my table. And all of my provisions are your provisions. And Mephibosheth must have just been, you know, just looking around like, this can't be real. But it was real. And David loved and honored and fellowshiped with Mephibosheth throughout the rest of their lives. And it's this beautiful story of grace because David shouldn't have acted that way. Right? David should have wiped him out. Um, Mephibosheth, the name Mephibosheth, it means out of the mouth of shame. So there's a sense of shame connected to this name Mephibosheth. And let, let's, let's draw some personal application now. Um, Mephibosheth was injured in a fall. Anybody here been injured in a fall? Yes, all of our hands go up. You know, mankind fell when we sinned, and we all became crippled and injured and debilitated because of a fall. And because of that, we all live in shame and in fear of a God that we don't know. And then by God's grace, he comes to us and he calls us to his table. Um, Mephibosheth went to a place called Lodabar. Lodabar was a barren land. Mephibosheth was trying to go to a place where nobody would be interested in coming, so nobody could find him. Lodabar was a place where nothing really grew, and it was a barren, fertile-less land. So this guy's spending his life crippled, living in shame, in a barren existence. Anybody been there? We've all been there. Don't put your hand up. Right? Apart from God, that's our story. Right? Now, Mephibosheth didn't get his act together, you know, heal himself up and go march over to the king. The king came looking for him. It's an amazing picture of what Jesus does for us. And the king didn't even come for Mephibosheth because of him alone, but because there was a relationship with the son. See, we're accepted by the king of kings and lord of lords because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And so when we come to his table, when we come to communion, when we come into his presence in eternity, we come by his grace, by his invitation, through the relationship with the Son. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Mephibosheth was born into royalty. I love this. He's royalty. Let, you know, let's not blow this out of proportion, but do you realize you are born of royalty? We're from a royal line, you guys. We are created in the image of God. You know, we were watching um, the Chronicles of Narnia last night with our kids, and I love it. These, like, angel figures come to the, to the humans, and they're like, you know, greetings, you know, um, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. You know, and I just love this kind of, you know, majestic kind of thing. We've got we to gotta raise our eyes a little higher on who God says we are in him. You were born into royalty. You were injured and crippled by a fall. And then a king came and rescued you. And some of you are here and maybe you don't know Jesus and you have a vague sense of a God that you feel you've offended and he's distant and you should be afraid of him. You shouldn't. We know his character. It's all about grace. We come to the table of communion because of grace. Not because of performance. He had nothing intrinsically to offer the king other than a relationship. And then he was ultimately given uninterrupted provision from the king's table. I love it. I love it. It's just 
to wrap up this part of the service, and we're going to have a song, and we're going to have communion, and then uh, we'll have some more worship. Um, but I, I told this story when I first got here like three years ago, and I just quickly kind of summarize and tell a story because of what God did in me, because of what he said to me. So um, back in 1983, I was a high school kid, and, and I, I did some dumb things and got into some trouble with some friends, and, and one night we took ski caps, ski masks, and we put them over our face, and we wore dark clothing, and at one o'clock in the morning, we snuck out, and we broke into a golf course, and in the golf course upstairs, there was a, there was an outdoor, like, stairway, like 20 stairs up to an upstairs door, and we snuck up that thing at 1.30 in the morning, broke in, stole a whole bunch of merchandise, right? I ended up getting arrested, and, you know, it all worked out ultimately, but it was a it was a shameful thing. I was a pretty high-profile athlete in my community, so people knew me. I was going to college on a golf scholarship, and one of the biggest influences of my life was my high school golf coach. His name was Tony Gamboli, and um, Tony wasn't a believer in Jesus at that time, but he was a godly man, um, and he cared about kids, and he was a big influence in my life as my family kind of disintegrated through divorce and some things, and I was so afraid to face my mentor, my my golf coach, Tony Gamboli, who I loved, and Tony, I got out of jail. I spent one night in jail. The Egg McMuffin was no good either, by the way. Um, and Tony Gamboli came, and he sought me out, and Tony said, Ralph, he said, sometimes you can, you know, you can hate the sin but love the sinner. And he said, I don't like what you've done, but, but I love you, and I'm going to stick by you, and you're going to get through this, right? And Tony Gamboli just... just I mean, maybe he didn't save me, but he saved me at the time. You know, I didn't have support from every part of my, you know, my social circle at that time. So went through some crazy, you know, just college years. And then uh, six years later, I get saved. Dramatically transformed. Jesus comes into my life. And, and I tell Tony Gamboli about Jesus. And he, he's a good man. He listens, but he doesn't get it. And I pray for Tony Gamboli for 12 years without failing. I witness to him. I love him. We spend time together. Again, make kind of shorten the story. 2001, he comes to a, a camp that I'm doing, a golf camp that's a Christian thing. And we're doing it for kids, and there's 90 kids, and he's come as a coach to help teach and stuff. And, and we do this altar call at the end of one of the nights. And, you know, I'm talking to kids over here, praying with somebody around. I look around, and Tony Gamboli's got tears running down his eyes, and he's walking to the front. And he said, I want to know Jesus. And he had a dramatic life-changing encounter. I've got a picture of Tony and I. Um, there, I, don't know, I don't know how well you can see that. But this was right after he prayed to receive Christ. I got to pray with him in 2001 for him to receive Christ. And later that year, I'm going back to New York where he's from. And he says, Ralph, come and save my family. Right? And I'm like, Coach, it doesn't really work that way. You know? I mean, it's not, not quite. But this guy's like loaded with faith. And he's like, he's telling everybody about Jesus, right, for the whole next six months. And then I get to his house. And he's like, save my family. You know, so I'm like, well, we'll do a Bible study. So anyway, we do a Bible study. And his son-in-law, who's completely closed to church and, and religious stuff, just totally gets it. And the lights go on. And he says, I want to know Jesus right now. We pray with him to receive Christ. The next night I come back, we do some worship and a Bible study, and his daughter with a full heart says, I want Jesus in my life. That was in 2001. Twelve years later, they, I was with them last month. They are on fire evangelists in New York. They both work, both the kids, the, the young folks, work in public school systems, and they run outreaches and Bible study clubs after school. Unbelievable transformation, right? Um, so Tony Gamboli is amazing, right? So 
2001, he gets saved. 2001, he says, come talk to my family. 2002, he runs a, a, a fundraising golf tournament in New York. And he said, Ralph, and 240 people come. And it's like a beer and hot dog thing, you know. And he says, Ralph, I want you to come. I want you to tell everybody about Jesus, right? And I'm like, coach, it's like beers and hot dogs, you know. You, you know, you know you're sure? You know, this is in my hometown. A lot of people are going to know me. I've been gone for a long time. Coach says, Ralph, I want you to come. I want you to tell your story, tell people about Jesus. So I, I fly to New York from Florida and um, play golf. And everybody's in the golf course in the banquet hall. 240 people. It's packed. It's nighttime. It's about 15 minutes before I'm going to get up and share my testimony. And uh, I walked outside about 50 yards away from the place. And I just started praying. You know, God, anything else that I haven't prepared do you want me to say? You know, God, anything you want to say to me before I go back in there? I always kind of pray that kind of thing. Um, and I heard God say, yeah, I do have something to say to you. And as he said that, it hit me. This is the place where I broke into. It's the same place 22 years earlier, <laughs> right? I'm like, uh-oh, what's he going to say? <laughs> you know, oh, boy. <laughs> so, and I'm standing 50 yards from the building, and I realize it's a perfectly clear night with stars, and I'm looking at the stairs that I had walked up with a ski mask on. 20, 83, 20... 18 years earlier, I, I can't do math. Um, and I see myself walking up with a ski mask as an 18-year-old kid. And I'm standing there, and, I, and God says, yeah, Ralph, I've got something else to say to you. He said, in this place where you had your greatest moral failure, in this place where you lied and you stole and you cheated, I have brought you back to share about my grace in your life. And I tell you, I walked in there like so full of God and so grateful. And I realized God was, God redeemed that part of my story. And, and I tell it because of that. You know, God did not send his son into the world to condemn. God sent his son to save. All right. See, guys, we didn't talk much about Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth, knew that he was broken, right? I mean, there was no doubt in his mind he was broken. And the king came, and the king brought grace, and the king brought restoration, and he fellowshiped his whole life at the king's table. Guys, when we come to communion, we're coming before a king's table to fellowship with him because he's pursued us. You know, I should stop. Okay. I don't want to start communion yet. I want these guys to lead us, just to lead this song. Prepare your heart for communion. I'm going to come up and just talk for a minute after that, and then we'll be ready to, to move for communion. But... Thanks. So we'll invite the, um, those who are going to help with communion to just kind of come forward and hang out here for a minute as we prepare uh, you know, the night that Jesus administered the Lord's Supper and instituted it, um, <clears throat> he was in a point in his life where he was no longer measuring time by years. I think we all measure our time by years. You know, Jesus at that point was measuring his life by hours. And he knew it. What do you, what do you say when you're measuring your life by hours? You know what Jesus said? He said, I am going to illustrate for you the most passionate way that I can 
my love and my grace. And then Jesus said, this is my body broken. You cannot love more than that or give grace more than that. He said, this is my blood that spilled on your behalf. He was measuring his time and hours. Then, then he was on the cross just after that. No longer measuring time and hours, guys. Measuring time in minutes. Maybe, maybe he was measuring his time in seconds at this point. You know what he said? In all that pain, he looked at the people who tormented him and tortured him and crucified him, and he said, God, forgive these people. Do you think Jesus said that the way we read it? I think Jesus took a deep breath and fought on the cross and he said, God, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. If you don't think Jesus spoke with passion when he talked about grace and love, then you, you didn't read it right, right? So Jesus says that and, and then he looks at a criminal on the cross next to him and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Guys, every step of his journey. Every word out of his mouth was about grace. So I want you to come to these tables. We, we kind of know how to do this. We'll follow. You'll follow out to your left and come around and then come to the right. And you guys feel free. We can, we can, you guys can grab these and we'll kind of, you know, spread into the spots. You can feel free to take the elements. Um, and what we're going to do when these guys are set here in just a minute, you can feel free to come at any time. Um, But I'm going to read some scriptures, and it's probably four or five minutes worth of scriptures. Um, And it's stuff we can meditate on as you're coming and as you're taking the Lord's Supper. And then when I'm done, the worship team will just worship. And so um, don't feel you have to come right away. Let God prepare your heart. Um, And you'll come from the left and go to the right and bump into people and give them grace when they step on your toes and all that stuff, right? I was thinking about verses that illustrate grace and I've just pulled some out. So I'm going to sit and I'm going to read and you can sit and you can come whenever you're ready to the table of communion, to the table of grace. Romans 8 It says this, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. 
Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to the sharing of God's glory. God's the same yesterday and today forever in the Old Testament. Israel, Israel had seriously rebelled against God and God came to Moses and said, I am Yahweh the Lord. I am the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations and I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. I just love this. I just think if there's the greatest hits in in heaven, in Scripture, John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ.